Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. Good to have you back with us. My name is Kevin DeYoung. And uh, coming to the end of this fall season, this episode, one more, and then I'll be taking a break for about a, a month or so over Christmas and into January. And in the process of lining up another wonderful season, hopefully, of guests and conversation on life and books and everything. I want to thank our sponsor, Crossway Books. And just so you know, Crossway, uh, they give me uh, which book they want me to mention at the beginning of the program. So I, I, not, I didn't choose this, but this one, they said, can you talk about the biggest story Bible storybook, which happens to be written by me and illustrated by Don Clark. So if you haven't seen this, I encourage you. The illustrations are amazing. It'd be a great gift for Christmas. It's 104 stories from the Bible, 52 from the Old Testament, 52 from the New Testament that I wrote trying to connect the whole big story of Jesus' death and resurrection, crushing the serpent, and try to tell it in a way that is as accessible, I guess you would say maybe children ages 6 through 12 or thereabouts, a little bit older, but hopefully like like all good kids' books, adults will learn something too. So go ahead and you can go to crossway.org slash plus to find out how you can get 30% off with a Crossway Plus account or find it wherever good books are sold. My guest this morning, uh, when we're recording anyways, it's morning, is Daniel McCarthy. Daniel and I have just met now formally face-to-face over Squadcast for the first time after exchanging a few emails, but uh, I read a book review of his, which we'll get into in just a moment, months ago, and then it took this long to set up this conversation. Daniel is the editor of Modern Age, a conservative review, editor-at-large of the American Conservative. He's written in the New York Times, USA Today, Spectator, Reason, many other publications. He has been a senior editor of ISI Books, which publishes a lot of conservative books, graduate of Washington University in St. Louis. So, Daniel, very good to have you on the program. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. That's the professional biography, but where are you from? How did you get into this line of work, and what do you do as an editor, speaker, writer? Yeah, you know, my day job is with uh, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, which is one of the oldest uh, conservative educational institutions in the country. It was started in 1953, and uh, it exists uh, in the name of its... uh, um, uh, sort of uh, motto to educate for liberty, and um, that is uh, in some ways a little bit too compact of a description of what ISI does. We actually educate for virtue and for order as well. We try to um, connect students all across the country with uh, sort of the great ideas that helped found to found this country, and uh, to acquaint them with some of the challenges that are facing not just conservatives, uh, but also and not just Christians, but really you know people of goodwill and good faith uh, all. Uh, across the spectrum uh, in our, our our country today, that uh, you know we're facing an enormous amount of adversity, an enormous amount of kind of uh, ideological um, heavy-handedness from a progressive left, which uh, would like to see everyone conform to its own uh, rather radical ideas. So I became interested in conservatism uh, in my own college years, and uh, since that time uh, I, I entered journalism. I went to work for the American Conservative Magazine very soon after it got started in 2003. And uh, I basically spent the last 20 years 
working both as a journalist and also as someone who uh, uh, you know is, is a part of the world of ideas, not necessarily as an academic, but someone who is very much in tune with uh, discussions that are taking place among the uh, sort of philosophers and thinkers of conservatism and not just the uh, doers and uh, politicians. Very good. So a uh, little bit of background why I'm interested, and this is for my listeners as much as, as anyone. So I'm a pastor and uh, at a conservative Presbyterian church, I'm reformed in my theology, and I teach at a seminary. So I am, uh, you know, my, my calling is not to electoral politics or to get my church to vote a certain way or to even put, I think, anybody coming to our church would say there, there's nothing about politics except insofar as certain issues have very clear stances in the Bible, like abortion is wrong, and that will come up, and uh, there's no apologies about that. But that's not, first of all, a political issue. So my interest is both uh, as someone who likes to read as much as I can in this area, but also it's just a fact that within many conservative, let's say theologically conservative churches, there are inevitably a lot of political conservatives. And some of uh, what I'm interested in, why I'm so glad that you're on, Dan, is there are a number of debates and factions within movement conservatism and within this constellation of ideas, as you put it. And I see, even as a pastor, that sometimes these divisions find their way among Christians, and sometimes we don't even know what we're we're debating about, and we may think that we've we've hit upon some really new idea, but actually it's indicative of the sorts of divisions or at least differences that have existed among conservatives for a long time. And so I think just understanding what's going on. And, uh, I mean, it, it's a truism to say we're always in a moment of great change. That's always the case. And yet it does seem like the very definition of what it means to be a conservative is really up for grabs, or not up for grabs, at least is a point of a lot of debate and contention at the moment. So before we get into this particular review in these two books, I want to ask you maybe, maybe the hardest question, are you a conservative, and what does that mean? I am a conservative, and uh, when I was first asked this question in a job interview about 20 years ago, I said that conservatism is a defense of normality. And uh, I think that's still a pretty good uh, sort of one-sentence definition. But if I were to expand on that a little bit, I would say that, um, you know, it is a defense of the constitutional spirit of, uh, you know, in, in the case of the United States, it is the constitution of, uh, you know, uh, Philadelphia that was created. Uh, in the case of, you know, uh, Britain, it's, it's the constitution uh, that, uh, you know, was evolving, but certainly had reached a high degree of refinement by the end of the 18th century. Uh, conservatism is, uh, you know, an idea that takes inspiration from Edmund Burke and from the American founding fathers. And it's not, you know, obviously simply a recapitulation of whatever they happened to say and think, uh, you know, over 200 years ago. But it is a defense of the spirit of the kind of constitutionalism, the approach to uh, the world of morals, the world of politics, the world of economics, the integration of all those elements into a civilized order that they, uh, you know, both in, in Britain and in the United States were working upon, and that is being challenged, uh, you know, especially in this country right now, by a revolutionary movement, a movement that in, in many respects is at least as revolutionary and perhaps much more so 
than the Jacobin uh, revolution that occurred in mm. France in 1789. And so, uh, Conservatism is very much a, uh, a counter-revolutionary and an anti-revolutionary uh, philosophy. In one, one of the debates that continues to exist is t- to what degree is being a conservative tied to being a person of religious faith? And uh, maybe we'll get into that. I, I would certainly never say that the two, that to be a Christian is to be a conservative or vice versa, but I would argue that there are certain... Christian ideas and ideals that are part of being a conservative. And one of those is a belief in having a human nature, that some things about us don't change. And so, therefore, we can learn something from the past, and there, are, there there's wisdom in the past that ought to be conserved. At its definition, that's what a conservative is trying to do. There's something uh, in the past, something that others have learned, have established institutions, ideas, constitutions that's worth preserving, worth learning, worth passing on to the next generation and conserving that. Now, let's talk about these two books, and uh, we'll, we'll let this conversation wander far afield, but we'll start here. You wrote in First Things, this was maybe at the, uh, the end of the summer, uh, a long, very good review on two books that have come out this year, one by Yoram Hazoni, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, and then the other by Matthew Continetti, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. I read both of those books, and uh, I don't know that if, if we're in you know, absolute agreement, but I, I read your review, and I really appreciated it, because I read both of those books, and I liked both of them, and there were elements of both of them that I, I found myself drawn to, and yet I left with wanting to say, eh, yes, but to several aspects in both of those books. So let's just start with the Continetti book, because that's where you start in your review. Give us an idea. What is Matthew's book about, the hundred-year history of the rights in, in this country, and what's your assessment of his historical and really intellectual review? Continetti has taken on an absolutely monumental task. He's tried to present in a single volume of about 400 pages uh, a hundred-year history of American conservatism and uh, covering not only the political side of things from basically Calvin Coolidge all the way through to the Trump administration, but also the intellectual side of things. And uh, it's a lot for a single volume of any kind to take on. Continetti actually does a very admirable job. He does about as well as I think anyone possibly could with a scope that large. And yet, uh, necessarily, it means that uh, both ideas and political events tend to be uh, covered in a rather summary fashion. And uh, Continetti's own point of view comes from a school of thought called neoconservatism. I think that's fair to uh, fair to say. Mm-hmm. He is the son-in-law of uh, William Crystal, the founder of uh, Weekly Standard, uh, and more recently, The Bulwark. And uh, he's part of, you know, the sort of extended Crystal family that begins with Irving Crystal, who was, uh, you know, often uh, somewhat humorously referred to as the godfather of neoconservatism. And um, so Continetti's view of conservatism is what I uh, call in the review a kind of liberal conservatism. Uh, he looks at uh, the American founding and the tradition of conservatism since then as being something that, you know, at its best 
is in fact a part of a wider liberal intellectual tradition. Uh, it is still a, the conservative side of, uh, of Continetti himself, uh, of his book, and to some extent of certainly the Irving Crystal Project. I don't know about the Bill Crystal Project at this point. But right. a conservative side to it is that it does take religion very seriously. And it does say that without a, a the moral guidance that religion provides, the kind of, you know, econ- economics and politics that we are accustomed to in the United States are simply not sustainable. The social order is not sustainable. And that, in fact, one has to take very seriously the religious foundations of our very civilization. Now, as a... Uh as a pastor in the Presbyterian tradition, we have confessional standards, meaning there are, there are documents that have been written for us. It's the the Westminster Confession, larger and shorter catechism. These date back to the 1640s. And although there are differences among Presbyterians, for sure, at least if you're looking at conservative Bible-believing Presbyterians, we have this, we have these statements which have served well for almost 400 years to say, this is what, if you're a minister at least, you, you ought to believe. And if you go to a church that has Presbyterian in the title, this, th- this is the sort of doctrine that you can expect to be taught. And I think it serves to give, even though there's lots of internal divisions, some sense of unity and at least an understanding of you kind of should know what you can expect. One of, the, one of the takeaways, perhaps, from Continetti's book is to wonder— is there even a thing called conservatism? And what has unified, I think, it, it, you know, one of the themes that comes through, at least in his telling of it, is except for being anti-communist, there's hardly anything that conservatives have agreed on. Do you think that's taking it too far? Has there been more of a core to this conservative project in the last hundred years? Well, I think one thing that comes through quite strongly in Continetti's book is a contrast between the liberal conservatism with which he tends to sympathize and a populist conservatism, which he actually sees as having quite deep roots. And this populist conservatism is already present in Continetti's analysis uh, all the way back in the 1920s uh, with Calvin Coolidge. And he points to certain at least uh, surface similarities between Calvin Coolidge and the uh, conservatism of the 1920s and Donald Trump and the conservatism of the 2020s. And even though Coolidge and Trump are very, very different characters, uh, in both eras you found that there was a certain amount of, uh, you know, uh, belief that we needed to have a stricter control of our borders, a certain kind of, uh, uh, you know, also a belief that we uh, should be uh, somewhat uh, cautious about our military engagements all around the world. Uh, you know, something that critics might call isolationism, but I think would be uh, sort of better understood as a kind of um, uh, realist, uh, you know, sort of caution about intervention. And then also that, uh, you know, there is a certain uh, you know, belief in the wisdom of Main Street comes through both in the populist, uh, you know, conservatism of the 1920s and also of uh, the 2020s here. Uh, Continetti, however, believes that there's a tendency for this populist conservatism to uh, become xenophobic, to become actually isolationist, and basically to, um, uh, you know, sort of play to the most, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, base instincts of uh, the American public, uh, as opposed to uh, dealing with the sort of moral complexities that are uh, you know, presented to us, not only in the liberal tradition, but also by the experience of, you know, a global economy and uh, a nation state as powerful as our own, which has necessarily a number of uh, commitments all around the world, which it has to uh, deal with in a uh, rather 
you know, sophisticated fashion and perhaps a, a fashion that must be uh, in large part idealistic as well as re- realistic. I think that's one of the key divisions between uh, Matthew Continetti mm. and perhaps certain other uh, thinkers on the right. Uh, Continetti and the neoconservative tradition that he represents uh, tends to believe uh, very strongly that, uh, you know, by uh, hewing to uh, American ideals, and when we look at foreign policy and when we engage in uh, especially, you know, conflicts around the world, that this will uh, see us through to a successful conclusion. And of course, uh, the Iraq war of the last uh, 20 years was an example where that didn't work out. And I think Continenti is somewhat chastened by that. Uh, nevertheless, he, I think, is concerned that uh, Americans, uh, American conservatives in looking at foreign policy are perhaps losing touch with the idealism that uh, he would prefer to see uh, represented. So you, the the point you bring out about the, the the tensions within the conservative movement with a populist wing come through many places in this book. So here's one of them right in the middle. He's writing about the 1970s and the new right. So that, that's a term that's used today for various iterations of conservatives. But here in the 70s, Uh, The enemies of the new right were compromise, gradualism, and acquiescence in a corrupt system. Partisan identification had little to do with the antagonisms of new right activists. William F. Buckley, George Will were just as much the targets of their criticism as CBS and the New York Times. Uh, It goes on, he quotes from... Uh, an article from Kevin Phillips. There are conservatives whose game it is to quote English poetry and utter neo-Madisonian benedictions over the interests and institutions of establishment liberalism. Then there are other conservatives, many I know, who have more in common with Andrew Jackson than with Edmund Burke. And he goes on. So this has been part of the the interconversation or debate among conservatives as you say, really from the from the 20s, and here he's referencing the 1970s, but could sound very familiar today. So how do you respond to the argument that some would say that populism is by its very definition the opposite of conservatism, and that conservatives understand that the mass of public opinion is bound to be dangerous and given uh, over to demagogues, and that's why we have these constitutional checks and balances, and that's why we have the Electoral College to try to prevent the the masses from being whipped up into a frenzy to get whatever they want, because they don't usually know what is best for them. Now, I, I, I think there's some truth to that, and I think there's some good responses, but how would you respond to that sort of argument that says populism and conservatism are opposites. I think the 20th century thinker who brings populism and conservatism together and shows their compatibility best is Wilmore Kendall, who was born around 1909. He dies uh, in the late 1960s, and he publishes a book called The Conservative Affirmation, for which I've just written a new foreword and a, a new edition brought out by Regnery a little bit earlier this year. Wilmore Kendall was a very unusual thinker. He was uh, an Oklahoma boy who maintained his sense of uh, connection to what we would now call red state America. But he was also uh, a child prodigy who went on to study at Oxford University. He became a uh, political uh, science professor at Yale University. And he was uh, something of a mentor to the early uh, William F. Buckley Jr. during Buckley's own time at Yale. Uh, And Kendall was a intellectual defender of Joseph McCarthy and uh, his red hunting exploits uh, during the 1950s, which, as you can imagine, uh, even back then, was uh, extremely unpopular at a place like Yale University. And eventually Yale winds up buying out uh, Wilmore Kendall's tenure uh, just in order to get rid of him. They pay him off and uh, 
you know, uh, set him uh, set him free. Uh, Kendall argues, and I think quite persuasively, both in the conservative affirmation and in a few other works, that uh, you know our tradition uh, as Americans. Uh, is understood very well in the Federalist Papers. It's understood through the text of the U.S. Constitution itself. It's understood actually in a whole series of documents going back to the American uh, colonial period, things like the Mayflower Compact, the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, etc. And he says that the, all of these documents have a history of bringing together both the people and also a certain amount of uh, you know procedural and uh, other methods in order to get the best mm. out of the people, right? So it is popular government, but it's not popular government in a you know sort of direct uh, sense in the way that you had in ancient Athens, for example. And it also isn't popular government uh, in a plebiscitary modern sense. And what Kendall meant by that is the idea that you know you have one person, one vote in a sort of very large universe of voters. You know the uh, paradigmatic case would be the uh, popular vote in presidential elections. Well, of course, if you have that, you really are dealing with an enormous, undifferentiated mass. Uh, it has, you know, sort of very little structure within it. It's just a huge population of 300 plus million people. And uh, right. when you have a population that large and without any kind of internal structure, you can only communicate with it in the vaguest and most broad terms. And I like to uh, name as an example here the way in which uh, Barack Obama campaigned on this extremely vapid theme of hope and change. Uh, well, Wilmore, Wilmore Kendall had already been writing in the 1960s and earlier that when you have presidential elections conducted in this, you know, attempted a plebiscitary fashion, they're going to have that tendency towards real, you know, sort of uh, extreme abstraction, uh, which is going to cause mm -hmm. ultimately a disconnection between the elites and the people, because, you know, you're talking to the people in terms that have, you know, very little uh, concrete detail of necessity, because, you know, you're dealing with such a large population. Kendall thought the genius of the American system was its, its localization of the people. The fact that the people, you know, make their decisions through their congress congressional districts, uh, through their states, ultimately, with, uh, you know, uh, when the Senate comes to be directly elected, uh, you know, state by state. Uh, originally, of course, the Senate was, uh, you know, uh, senators were selected by state governments, uh, uh, right. state legislatures which, of course, had, uh, you know, a very localized, uh, you know, sort of voting base, uh, you know, in each state. Uh, the the um, uh, Electoral College is another great example of how the Constitution structures and orders uh, public opinion and the public will in such a way as to try to regulate it, make sure that it is, uh, you know, the best of it is brought out. And Kendall thought one of the key things to doing this is a, con a concept called constitutional morality, that basically when you have this channeled, and uh, sort of aggregated, uh, you know, localized and then aggregated sense of the American people and their desires. When you have uh, legislators or electoral college electors come together, they can then actually deliberate and uh, sort of reach specific, you know, so, uh, decisions about very complex ideas that are not simply these appeals to, you know, sort mm. of the broadest and most open-ended concepts that you get with, uh, uh, you know, presidential plebiscitary elections. So I think this shows, on the one hand, how, you know, rightly structured a, you know, sort of popular system that is also a conservative and a well-channeled system, how these two things fit together. Of course, you know, the uh, left-wing revolution that we've been, you know, sort of experiencing over the course of several decades has been trying to undo all of this. It's been trying precisely to create a kind of plebiscitary system. Uh, and, and even now you see, of course, progressives saying we should, we should get rid of the filibuster. 
you know, it's unfair that small states have as much representation as large states. Uh, there are all kinds of changes to our constitutional system progressives would like to make that would point us in a more plebiscitary direction. But that's how you actually get demagoguery. Whereas when you have, you know, the a kind of constitutionalism that the founding fathers envisioned, you can have popular self-government that is nonetheless, uh, you know, still balanced and mature and is going to have a certain governing mm-hmm. class which acts as a servant to the people. Uh, populism, as we have it today, in part arises from this disconnection, from the fact that when you move towards a more plebiscitary uh, kind of politics, as the progressives have done, what you wind up with is the people realize, wait a minute, we're not really represented, or at least large segments of popular opinion are not represented adequately, they're not given a fair hearing, there is no uh, sense of deliberation and constitutional morality, instead there's this approach of kind of winner-take-all politics, and if you get 50% plus one, you can then try to run the country right. entirely the way you wish to, and what that does is it generates a certain amount of backlash that you see at the popular level, and I think that's one of the you know sort of key drivers of of this uh, sort of chaos and entropy that we see associated with populism, and not just on the right, but also, of course, you know, Bernie Sanders and various movements on the left, Occupy Wall Street about a decade ago. There really is this very broad uh, sense among different segments of the American people that they are not represented and they're being governed by people who do not have their interests in heart. And, uh, you know, if we were to move back, I think, to a more uh, traditional constitutional uh, approach uh, of the sort, you know, advocated by Publius and the Federalist, uh, we'd be able to mitigate some of these otherwise uh, intractable problems. And, and some of what you're you're rightly identifying is because, you know, it's the rise of, you know, I, I know you've you've done some stuff with Aaron Wren, and he was on the podcast a, a bit ago, and have read James Burnham and the rise of the managerial elites and that uh, very influential conservative thinker. But the 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 constitutional system we're supposed to have is with. A constant roiling of elections. That is, you're always, of course, the Senate's every six years, but the House is every every two years, and then you have at state levels and then county levels. That you're you're supposed to be constantly in touch with the people. That there's always these elections, everything from school board up to president every four years, but the entire House every two years. That you're never supposed to be very far from. Am I out of touch with what? where the people are at. But of course, more and more as the real movers and shakers, not the real, but at least overlaying that political system would be media, tech, uh, bureaucracy, elites. And I don't use all those, you know, those terms by themselves are not negatives. Uh, and sometimes I think conservatives can just use that as a shorthand for making better arguments to just say big and whatever you put after it, you know, is is bad or elites. But Aaron Wren has helpfully pointed out that the, the answer to a problem with elites is not no elites. Somebody's going to be an elite. Some group of people are going to be influencing in maintaining institutions, that the answer is not no elites. But, but better elites and, and elites hopefully that are formed by civic virtue or I would say formed by even Christian character that truly do want to serve the people. So how do you see uh, – is there any way 
forward? Is there any way to, you know, we can't go back. We can't have a country that's as small as we were when the Constitution was written. And those documents, some would say, well, they can't serve our country 250 years later. I think you and I would, would disagree with that. But what are the, the practical ways forward, knowing how different our world and our country is from this constitutional order that was set in place in the 1780s? You've caught, uh, you know, a big part of it simply by identifying what one of the problems is. And uh, I think this will help, you know, sort of give a sense of, uh, you know, encouragement, uh, maybe not optimism, but at least a sense that, okay, if we recognize what it is we're we're dealing with, we don't have to have the sense of despair, the sense of confusion that uh, occasionally overtakes uh, some of our friends, uh, you know, uh, among uh, the conservative world. Um, so yes, you're dealing with a very different media environment. One of the things that's happened is not just you know the uh, rise of social media, uh, even you know much earlier with the rise of a uh, you know sort of nationwide broadcast media, television and radio. All of these things you know changed the way that Americans interacted with and thought about their government. Uh, you know you can point back uh, you know to the 19th century. Think of someone like Alexis de Tocqueville writing in Democracy in America. He has some very powerful passages in that book where he talks about the role of newspapers in America, the role of these periodical publications, and how you know, each, each newspaper represented an interest. And in each locality, in each town, in each city, you would have a multitude of these newspapers. And the newspapers were ways in which you know, these different uh, elements within the community communicated with one another. They argued things out. They made their persuasive case to the public. And they played a very healthy role in helping to glue together these different interests within, uh, you know, uh, the local sphere of America and help to, you know, sort of order and channel what was going on at the local level in politics. Of course, you know, since then, we've had such vast changes in the media landscape that things don't work nearly, uh, you know, in the way that uh, Tocqueville had described back in the 19th century. You've also had, uh, you know, the rise of a much more globalized economy. Mm-hmm. So in the 19th century, you know, one of the big challenges was simply gluing together the, the United States itself. The United States, you know, still was uh, a land of wilderness in, in many cases. It was a land where it was very difficult, you know, to get across the country. Uh, you know, you have to build a transcontinental railroad eventually, you have to do a number of other things. You know, ultimately, you know, it's in the 20th century, you get the interstate highway system. But it was difficult enough just to get goods from one end of the country to the uh, to the other. In the course of you know the 19th and 20th centuries, now, however, you have uh, shipping uh, that goes uh, straight from you know Indochina all the way through to uh, you know uh, to the United States, and then from you know one end of the United States to the other. And what this does is it it really lessens the importance of locality in uh, economic life. And as the economic importance of locality gets dissolved, that tends to uh, create problems for the political importance of locality. So you wind up, uh, you know, this is, of course, not only true with the movement of goods across continents and across oceans, but also with the way in which capital is now pooled in uh, cities, international cities all around the world, rather Mm -hmm. than being uh, distributed more broadly uh, across, you know, sort of towns and localities uh, you know, across our country as it had been, you know, until the end, basically, of the 20th century. So this is a, a structural problem, which then combines with this media problem, which is that a, a media that is now, you know, um, 
uh, delocalized. You know, it's no longer the case that we're all reading sort of local newspapers from our own towns that represent, you know, local opinion in its various channels. No, instead, we're dealing with these vast, you know, sort of uh, huge ideological uh, concepts uh, being, you know, expressed by Fox News or by the Washington Post by a handful of very large, uh, you know, sort of media institutions. And then you have social media, which I think is, is perhaps the most radicalizing thing of all, because think about this, you know, when uh, people are distributed among, uh, you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of towns, uh, yes, you're going to have in every town a certain number of people who are sort of uh, what might be called uh, Jacobin and Outlook, who are, you know, discontented oh, right. with, uh, you know, the uh, not just the political order, but even the social order, with even, you know, the way that, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of the different uh, orders and classes and uh, even the, the sexes and genders of society relate to one another. There are always going to be some people who are misfits, you know, in, a, in any given scale of city or town. But once you have the internet, what you can do is you can start to connect all of the discontented, right. uh, you know, elements ac across, you know, these different localities and give them a sense that, aha, you could actually have a mass uprising. And so I think, you know, in 2020, for example, when we saw not just a response to George Floyd and various police uh, issues, but also, you know, this uh, this frenzy that overtook the country where people were tearing down statues of, you know, Abraham Lincoln, as well as, you know, Thomas Jefferson, just, you know, things that had nothing whatsoever to do with the immediate issue that supposedly was, was generating these mob actions. I think that was a contagion brought about by social media and brought about by the, you know, um, uh, raising of, you know, difficulties in places uh, like Minneapolis to suddenly becoming, uh, you know, a, um, a conflagration, uh, you know, across the, the whole country. So what do you do in order to, you know, combat that uh, sort of revolutionary uh, transformation in our institutions and revolutionary changes in the media, the world economy, etc.? I think the first thing you have to do is just, you know, recognize what's happened and then uh, see what the tools that are already available and that are constitutionally uh, licit are, um, you know, at hand in order to at least, you know, stop things from getting worse. And then hopefully, you know, begin to improve things once you uh, become adept at using the tools mm -hmm. that are available. So that's one reason I think there's a good case to be made for a kind of conservatism in defense of the nation state. And maybe that's going to be called nationalism. But the basic idea that I have there is that, you know, if you're able to exert a little bit more control over trade, for example, uh, on the international level, you're then going to be able to somewhat insulate your own country against uh, some of these global markets that are destructive to local uh, economies within the country. So in other words, it's a kind of nationalism in defense of localism, a nationalism in defense of federalism. Uh, I would extend that you know, uh, to issues like immigration and uh, to a whole panoply of other things as well. Uh, beyond that, I think we just have to you know, um, be aware of the damage that social media can do. Uh, I'm skeptical of a lot of efforts to try to artificially recreate the newspaper environment of right. the, uh, you know, the 19th century and the 20th century. But we should at least, you know, think about, um, you know, um, what we are losing. And uh, as you get, you know, a media that is more nationalized and is, you know, sort of uh, no longer channeled uh, through local institutions. And, uh, you know, I don't have a, a silver bullet for this problem. But it does seem to me that, uh, you know, recognizing the, uh, the difficulty is a starting point. You know, I think that, you know, things, uh, you know, remedies like the idea of uh, increasing the size of the House of Representatives, 
um, should mm-hmm. be considered. So that's an institutional fix. It's something that, you know, uh, progressives might be somewhat more enthusiastic about than conservatives. And yet I think that if you had more representatives in the House, uh, that would somewhat mitigate this idea that House districts have become over large. And, uh, you know, when you have hundreds of thousands of people in a single district, they don't quite behave the way that the uh, founding right. fathers had originally hoped for. And the other thing beyond that is just, I would continue to, um, you know, sort of reinforce the wisdom of uh, what the founding fathers did and of, uh, you know, the Federalist Papers and its outlook on the way in which you can have a popular system of government that is not simply going to become a plebiscitary or demagogic, uh, you know, uh, system. And in order to maintain this kind of structured uh, popular government, you need to maintain things like the filibuster, uh, things like, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, uh, states are uh, represented equally in the U.S. Senate. These things right. that are being attacked by progressives as being anti-democratic are, in fact, the thing that makes democracy orderly and really make it possible and strong. Whereas if you got rid of them, you would have a plebiscitary system that I think would generate much more of a populist backlash because, again, you'd have huge numbers of people who just feel as if they're not represented at all by a you know sort of national uh, you know uh, political force, which uh, may be depending upon you know fifty percent plus one, but you know a little beyond that in terms of its um, you know base of support, and may even have less than that. You know, you may have a very sophisticated elite which is capable of using its media tools, using you know economics, using uh, you know uh, you know political. Um, electoral systems that it may have control over in order to, you know, sort of uh, feather its own bed and to, you know, maintain in power a class of, you know, leaders who uh, really don't feel a great connection with, uh, uh, you know, their fellow Americans. And in fact, may feel that, you know, they exist in order to represent humanity more than they exist to represent American citizens. I think that's one of the main conflicts, uh, you know, that our politics in general is dealing with right now. This idea that at the corporate level, you have uh, corporations that think of themselves as global citizens as opposed to American companies. Uh, but also at the political level, you have an awful lot of uh, leaders in this country in both parties who really do think in terms of a you know sort of universal system of human rights that the United States should be upholding, as opposed to the idea that the United States really exists for the sake of American citizens themselves, which does not mean that it doesn't have to take right. uh, regard to uh, you know, universal rights, but it means that our primary responsibility as Americans is to America and to our, our fellow citizens. And if we, you know, say that actually our obligations to the rest of the world or to, you know, sort of uh, immigrant populations, to newcomers, et cetera, are just as great as they would be to our fellow citizens, then you no longer have a, you know, sort of Republican system of government among a defined people. What you have instead is rather a, a certain leadership class, which is claiming that, uh, you know, these abstract rights give this class a direct authorization to, you know, not just police the world, but also to look at America as something to be managed as opposed to something where the voice of the people has to be heard. That's right. My my, my kids go to our, our Christian school here. They, uh, for a number of years, were in a public school. And one of the, one of the things that always <laughs> bothered me was uh, one of the mottos of the public school was to make world citizens. And I thought, well, how how does one become a world? There's no citizenship for the world. There there's no passport that says world citizen. It's uh it, it's one of those vapid sort of goals, and yet underneath it, what that says by virtue of what it's not saying, 
Whereas whatever you want to say about what public education is now, certainly one of the aims from the beginning was to create virtuous American citizens. And so to now say we're creating global citizens is something entirely different. I want to go back to, and we will get back to your first things review and talk about the Hazoni book, but a few more questions. You mentioned Wilmore Kindle, the conservative affirmation. You wrote the, the, the new introduction or foreword for it. And, and I've read the book and he was... Uh, a very, you know, the word interesting is is overused, but he was an interesting guy. He did not live a life that was probably a model of virtue in in certain ways, but of an eclectic and an uh, an intriguing thinker who brought these two things. You said a conservative and a populist impulse. But there's one thing I'd love to get your your take on. He writes this in the preface. So this is 1963, and I underlined and starred this. Let me just read a few of these sentences. This book, unlike other books, treats the relation between American conservatism and religion as problematic. The problem put briefly is this, he writes, the United States is, has been down to now anyways, this is 1963, a Christian society governed or rather self-governed under a secular constitution. Nothing short of the sea change I mentioned a moment ago is likely to deprive Judeo-Christian religious beliefs of the special status approximating that of a public truth that they enjoy within it. But also, nothing short of such a sea change is likely in the foreseeable future to gain for them a more privileged status than they now enjoy. Attempts to resolve the religious society secular constitution tension in the United States in either the one direction or the other are not only divisive, but contrary to the American tradition itself. They do a poor service both to America and American conservatism, who say and write things that tend to read out of the ranks of conservatives, men in whose hearts Judeo-Christian religious teachings evoke no response, as also those who say and write such things that suggest religious men must somehow divest themselves of their deepest commitment in order to make themselves conservatives. I starred that because I thought this was very prescient, and yet... This is 1963, and his basic argument is there's been this inherent problem, as it were, a tension, that on the one hand, America, at least no federal establishment, there were state-established religions, and it took 50 years for that disestablishment to take place. God is not mentioned in the Constitution, and yet he says Judeo-Christian truth has been a kind of public truth. And he says there's there's this, this sort of detente between the two and it would be very un-American for either of these to, to fall away. Well, now, 60 years later, what he couldn't see is that Christianity no longer operates at the highest echelons of society as any kind of public truth, a shared sense of morality or public virtue even. If in many places in the public square you tried to make an argument from Bible verses, you would be you would be laughed out. Of course, you you can't make an argument from Bible verses. That's just not what we do. But of course, that's what many Americans did and many public officials did for most of American history. And I think it's no coincidence that as Judeo-Christian religion and values and Christianity as public truth has greatly declined and waned, that you're now seeing some uh, whether it's Christian nationalists or Catholic integralists or earlier in the 90s, it was theonomists. I think you're seeing Christians say, wait a minute, 
that that part of the tension has been resolved in one direction where these Christian views are no longer a kind of public truth. Therefore, at the time where it's least likely for any sort of Christian establishment to take place, I understand why some conservatives are saying, look, the, the only way to retain and, and regain ground is to have some sort of more official Christian establishment, whether it's an established church, whether it's a, you know, Catholic integralism, ideas that are as far removed from reality as they've ever been in this country. And yet I understand the impulse as a Christian, I understand the impulse because as Kindle is saying, we've had this, this, we're religious, but we're not a religious state uh, formally kind of tension from the beginning. How should we make sense of that? Because I think he rightly is seeing something about the American spirit and the American tradition. And yet, what are people of religious faith to do when it seems like, no, uh, Christianity has no sort of public truth anymore in most places of uh, of elite thinking? Yeah, I think uh, part of the the great challenge here is that even if you want to restore that balance, which, you know, some of our, uh, you know, more theonomic or integralist uh, you know, friends may want to go beyond restoring that balance. They may want right. to resolve that tension, as you've said, in the opposite direction by having you know, a, a, a confessional state, basically. Uh, but even if you just want to get back to uh, the kind of balance that uh, is traditional in America, uh, the question is, do you do that by making the argument in favor of that balance, or do you have to do it by basically trying to counterbalance in the opposite direction of where the mainstream, you know, institutions of power are pulling us. Uh, if the latter right. is the case, then, you know, in order to, you know, have this game of tug of war where the left is constantly pulling us towards, you know, not just secularism, but really a kind of uh, established anti-Christianity, um, if you right. want to, you know, even just get back to the center of things, you're going to have to pull very hard in the opposite direction back towards a very, you know, sort of strict Christian order. Um, this is something that you know currently causes a great many uh, tensions and uh, um, uh, conflicts in the American right, and um, you know I, I, I again can't say that there is a, a silver bullet here that will resolve the difficulty. And it seems to me that one thing that those of us who are um, you know, sort of very um, appreciative of the balance that uh, you know our ancestors were able to reach, uh, that the founding fathers were able to come to, and not just the founding fathers, but you know uh, Americans throughout the centuries. Um, one thing I would say is that you know it, you you don't have to be as afraid of. Uh, some of the you know sort of friends of ours on the right who are you know sort of pulling for a uh, a more strictly uh, you know sort of um, uh, confessional order uh, that again because of what you pointed out it's very unlikely that this is going to come to pass and so you know they are putting out radical ideas but they're radical ideas that are grounded in at least uh, you know uh, components of truth. Right. The uh, difficulty, of course, is always that people will latch on to one thing that is partly correct. And, uh, you know, it's often the definition of heresy, that you take a partial truth and turn it into the whole right. truth. And uh, there are all sorts of pitfalls, especially spiritually, when it comes to the idea that there can be some sort of uh, powerfully redemptive element in the political order itself. And I think, you know, Christians must always be careful of, you know, succumbing to a, a kind of Pharisaism there or uh, simply, uh, you know, coming to a kind of civil religion or state worship 
even if it may be branded with the name of Christianity. Uh, but we're very far from that, you know, being a practical uh, problem right now. In fact, you know, what we're dealing right. with are people who are making sort of platonic republics, only they're Christian platonic republics, so to speak, uh, you know, uh, in their minds, and that they're proposing these as uh, models or that may be superior to what we have right now. Um, I think that, you know, project... Um, you know, it, it's not something that would stop, you know, even if someone said, uh, hey, I think this is irresponsible. I think you're going too far in, you know, advocating the burning of heretics and the creation of, you know, uh, sort of strict laws, uh, you know, modeled upon, uh, you know, uh, early modern Europe, uh, you know, right after the Reformation or, uh, you know, sort of the late medieval right. period. Um, you know, as, as extreme as those ideas might be, they're ideas that, again, um, are on the level of Plato's Republic and some of the very bizarre proposals that are actually in the text of Plato. Things like, uh, you know, um, well, there's a little bit of communism, a little bit of, you know, sort of the sexual revolution is to be found in Plato's Republic. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, very few people, you know, read Plato and think, okay, this is, you know, we have to actually implement exactly this kind of order. Um, so it seems to me that there, there's going to be that tug of war between, you know, a left which has a very extreme position and a right which is going to, you know, at times offer a uh, an extreme that is, that is contrary to that, but is trying to, you know, contend against uh, these very fundamental choices that the left is is providing us with. And then this, you know, sort of balance, the basic uh, American pathway through, uh, you know, the connection between the transcendent and the practical, uh, that's something we're going to have to rediscover the wisdom of as we examine these, you right. know, uh, on the one hand, a, a theoretical approach that, you know, sounds very virtuous uh, in the abstract, but that really has very little connection to how we live today, or perhaps how we've ever lived, which is one of the things that I think, you know, uh, many of our friends who are, um, you know, who look to the Middle Ages or who look to uh, you know, uh, early modern Europe for models of Christian societies, uh, all those Christian societies actually had very deep flaws. And there's a reason why all of those societies actually fail and lead towards uh, something, you know, that becomes the, uh, you know, uh, the tendency that we have today. Um, you know, I, again, political redemption is just uh, something of a, uh, a uh, an ignis fatuus. It's a swamp light that people are following. Uh, right. it, it arises from a, a reasonable impulse, but it's it's not going to uh, prevail. And uh, but you need, I think, you know, that kind of going to the heart of things and con confronting the ideals if you want to resist the left, because the left is always making its case in terms of you know universal human rights, in terms of the very highest ideals, and not simply in terms of some sort of uh, practical uh, you know balance of things. Uh, what needs to be rediscovered, however, is the real uh, you know inspiriting and serious and and you know and Christian perspective on the Amer the American founding and the American tradition of government in general. And uh, and I think Wilmore Kendall, you know, who himself was very much a man of faith, is uh, someone who, who kind of shows us how, how to do that, that, you know, um, he has a book called uh, The Basic Symbols of the American Political Order, which is published after the conservative affirmation, in which he shows that from the Mayflower Compact onwards, there was this sense that in order for America to work, you had to have not just a free government, not just, you know, a government by the people, but it had to be a virtuous people, and the people had to recognize themselves as deliberating under God. You had to have that connection, that recognition of the transcendent. There was something more to being human, more to, you know, fulfilling our spiritual, uh, you know, uh, essence than simply, uh, you know, uh, what a, a materialistic or utilitarian or epicurean view of humanity would suggest, that it's all simply a matter of, you know, pursuing pleasure or pursuing, you know, material right. safety and well-being. No, in fact, there's something much higher 
the American tradition has always recognized that. Even, you know, when you've had great national leaders like Abraham Lincoln, whose personal orthodoxy as Christians is very much in doubt, nevertheless, mm-hmm. there's a reason why Lincoln's, you know, language so powerfully invokes the transcendent and the idea of providence. And you, so you work for, uh, you lead the, the magazine founded by Russell Kirk, and uh, Kirk, one of, and I, I read in the past year um, Bradley Bertzer's biography of Russell Kirk and really enjoyed reading it, and I'm from Michigan, and I pastored around Michigan State. Of course, he didn't like Michigan State very much, and then he, he moved up to his ancestral home in Macosta, but one of the perhaps critiques of some conservative impulses is it, it can at times be perhaps a nostalgia for some past bygone era. And I don't know that Continetti is is entirely fair here, but he says about Russell Kirk, he liked lost causes, exercises in imagination, and haunted houses. He minimized the differences Kirk did between Burkean European-style conservatism with its preference for monarchy, aristocracy, and established churches, and American constitutionalism with its belief in enumerated powers, individual natural rights, and religious pluralism. Um, I, I, th- there's there's much more to Kirk than that, and I think there's uh, you know I think the conservative mind, even if it is somewhat of a mishmash of a number of figures, still has a lot to instruct us, and I find a lot that I resonate with. But one of the one of the, the challenges, I think, is just what you said, and that's try to try to come up with, not come up with, but try to describe the vision that we have in a way that finds some roots in the, the world in which we now live. I mean, it's, it's, it's perhaps Catholics would say, oh, medieval Europe, that's late medieval Europe, that's when we really had it going on. And maybe a Reformed Protestant would say, if we could get to Geneva of uh, Calvin's 16th century, and yet, as you point out, those societies had deep flaws, and there's a reason that societies are not ordered in those ways any longer. And we have our own American tradition, which, of course, is not sacrosanct, it's not infallible, and yet anything that is going to have, it seems to me, some purchase power among the people is going to have to find a way to say, if you're trying to sell something that says the Constitution and the Declaration got it all wrong, or we'll get to Hezoni here, the Declaration got it mostly wrong and the Constitution really got it all right— that's that's not, I don't think, bound to be uh, a winner in the minds and hearts and imagination of people. And you bring up Lincoln, and you could also talk about MLK. For all their differences, uh, one of the reasons they were successful with their, their sort of moral vision was they were rooting it in what they saw to be the, the, the best of the American ideals or American traditions. And so how do you think... We try to do this, and here we're coming to Hazoni's book, which has, you know, just as as a as a Christian. Now he's a Jew, not a Christian, but many of his chapters at the end, he talks about being a conservative person. He talks about Sabbath. He talks about Scripture. I find myself resonating with. Would that more people were were serious Christians? I would say, and reading their Bible and keeping Sabbath. And yet, I think one of your critiques of Hazoni at the end of your review is that's a wonderful vision, and it's 
it, it, it's hard to have a vision that requires people to be the absolute best version of themselves. And that's one of the geniuses, I think, of the founders is understanding people rarely are the best version of themselves. And I think you even point out with Hazoni, not just what he's done, but needing to find the sort of wife that he's found that, uh, you know, wants to pursue this, this life together. So what is your, your what, what, what is Hazoni arguing for in his book on rediscovering conservatism? And just, our time is running short, but what do you resonate with and what are one or two of the critiques that you laid out of his vision? Yeah, Hazoni, uh, you know, was educated at Princeton University, among other places. And he found that Princeton, even in the 1980s, was already succumbing to all the pathologies that we see on our campuses today in terms of, you know, not just ideology, but also the, you know, sort of hedonistic lifestyle that uh, students uh, were expected to uh, follow. Uh, you know, a, a life of promiscuity, a life of, you know, sort of heavy uh, drinking, perhaps, you know, abuse of other substances. And Hazoni was, um, you know, appalled by this. He was not, you know, uh, uh, an intensely orthodox Jew, perhaps, when he first uh, went to Princeton. But he just found that uh, the degree of uh, libertinism that existed on American campuses was such that, uh, you know, it kind of reinforced in him the idea that uh, one has to find the, you know, sort of spiritual fortification to resist uh, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, almost compulsory debauchery. And so Mm -hmm. Hazoni, you know, became, I think, more and more serious, uh, you know, not just about his faith as a faith, but also the practices and the way of life that are appropriate uh, to that faith. And uh, he was very lucky. He found, you know, a a young woman who, uh, you know, uh, was going through, you know, kind of a similar uh, trajectory, a similar path. And uh, so, you know, they married and they've since, you know, started a very large family and uh, they actually they live in Jerusalem. Uh, Yoram is, you know, someone who sometimes advises the Netanyahu government. He's someone who, you know, is very deeply connected mm-hmm. with uh, Israeli politics. Uh, but Hazoni has also, you know, noticed that if the state of Israel is going to survive in the future, uh, it's going to require that the world respect the idea of national sovereignty and the idea of nationhood. And so Hazoni wrote a book a few years ago called The Virtue of Nationalism. And one of the important things about that book is that Hazoni is basically trying to communicate basically to the Gentile nations uh, why they should take their own nationalisms seriously, why they should not be embracing uh, this kind of universal uh, United Nations, uh, you know, and in some ways beyond that, a kind of almost impulse towards world government that you see certainly the intellectuals of you know, the Western world embracing. And Azoni says, no, in fact, you know, there are um, important virtues that uh, a political community is able to cultivate in terms of its way of life, in terms of its recognition uh, of the transcendent, in terms of connecting, you know, the day-to-day with the transcendent. All of these things, uh, you know, are mediated uh, in part through politics and through nation states. And uh, that's certainly true in Israel. And Hazoni tends to take Israel as being kind of a model for uh, the rest Mm -hmm. of the nations. And that's something that, you know, has both its strengths and its weaknesses. I think Hazoni is correct to remind us that uh, in the early modern period of Western uh, history, there were an awful lot of uh, thinkers who did indeed look at the idea of biblical Israel to inform the idea of nationhood, uh, you know, even in England, even in a number of other places. On the other hand, that was, you know, sort of one element of the developing 
uh, nationalism or nation state consciousness of, you know, sort of the, the 17th century, uh, uh, it was not the, the whole of it. There were other, you know, sort of components in thinking about politics as well. And, um, so one small critique I have of, uh, of Hazoni is that I think sometimes he takes that particular element, the idea of biblical nationhood and then the model of Israel today as being paradigmatic in a way that, uh, it only partly applies to, uh, you know, sort of Western nation states like, you know, Britain and France and, uh, you know, applies to the United States uh, only in a kind of loose way as well. Um, one of the great things about Hazoni's book, Conservatism, uh, a Rediscovery, is that he does try to show that, in fact, there is a deep conservatism and not simply a liberalism in the American founding, in the American constitutional tradition that connects with and has a certain uh, number of parallels with and continuities with the British tradition. And that this goes back not only to Edmund Burke in the uh, you know, sort of late 18th century, but goes back much farther. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, Hazoni points to John Fortescue, who is a, a 15th century thinker, as being someone who already has, in Hazoni's uh, claim, a, a pretty solid grasp on the essentials of uh, what Hazoni would call the Anglo-American tradition of constitutional government. I think all of that is an important, uh, you know, rediscovery, mm-hmm. as the title of Hazoni's book suggests, that uh, we've been told for a very long time, since basically, uh, you know, sometime after the uh, First World War, that America has a purely liberal foundation. And uh, one of the things I think is ironic is that uh, some of my integralist friends, for example, have exactly the same view here that uh, many, you know, quite progressive left wingers have about the idea it's that all liberalism John Locke, is the only all the tradition. Yeah, all of it, all of it's John Locke. All of it has been, you know, uh, liberalism, and uh, and all liberalism is the same. That basically the liberalism right. of John Locke or of Thomas Jefferson uh, is identical to. Uh, you know, the political thought of John Adams or Alexander Hamilton or George Washington. And all of that, in turn, is identical to uh, John Stuart Mill. And John Stuart Mill, in turn, is identical to uh, the UN Declaration John of Rawls Universal or, Rights. Yeah. And then John Rawls and then, you know, everything that we have today up to, uh, you know, whatever ideologues are running the, the Joe Biden administration. And um, all of that is, is bad history. And Hazoni is a correction to that. Now, I think Hazoni may, in some respects, be an overcorrection. I think Hazoni, you know, is sometimes, um, you know, saying that there are these two permanent camps of conservatives and liberals, which were, you know, at hammer and tongs back during the American Revolution and during the American founding period. And that, you know, these two, you know, streams of thought, these two perspectives have, you know, a kind of um, a permanent metaphysical existence, which I do not think they have. I think, you know, both of these, uh, you know, conservatism and liberalism, um, they're both more historical than Hazoni uh, perhaps would, would tend to lead us to think. And also and they more don't recent just, than uh, Hazoni. Yeah, and they don't just wear black hats and white hats or federalists and anti-federalists or federalists and Jeffersonians or constitution, yay, declaration, not so much. As you point out, you know, uh, John Adams is also influencing the Declaration and signing the Declaration. It's not just a recapitulation of Jefferson's own views, but it's uh, a consensus document, as is the Constitution. So, I, that, I, you know, I, I resonated with your appreciation for what Hazoni is doing in rediscovering these various influences in the American founding, and also resonated with, yeah, but it's not so neat and tidy that the good guys were over here and the bad guys were over here, and those sort of platonic ideas and ideals still exist in our own. If we could just map ourselves on on the right one, history is is usually messier than that. I wanted to ask you one 
last question. Uh, I say last, but I'll probably think of another one. But I, I, when I read through Continetti's book, one of the things that struck me again as, a, as an evangelical Christian and, and minister was how little evangelicals played in that hundred-year history that he wrote about. Now, they do as an electoral force, especially starting in the late 70s. You know, 1976 is the year of the evangelical. Of course, then it's Jimmy Carter, but then with uh, the moral majority and Reagan, and, and off we are. And so today, evangelical almost becomes just a, a popular electoral category rather than a theological one. But as far as intellectual influences in the movement, it's almost exclusively Jews and Catholics. Now, I have my, my suggestions on why that may be, but you, you're even more of a, a student of the history of it than, than I am. Why do you think, or has Continetti just missed it, or why do you think evangelicals, for all of their vaunted influence that we hear of today, either for good or for ill, depending on which side you're talking to, in the telling of the hundred years of the right in America, seem to have played such a insignificant intellectual role in the movement? Yeah, I think it's a matter of uh, parallel intellectual developments. So the, you know, heavily uh, sort of Catholic and Jewish um, intellectual background of so much of post-war American conservatism uh, kind of leads to a self-perpetuating mythology. So uh, the fact that uh, the editors of National Review, for example, tended to be uh, Roman Catholics, the fact that an important magazine like Commentary, uh, you know, was published by uh, the American uh, Jewish Committee, the fact that you had, you know, all of these particular Catholic and Jewish intellectuals who had uh, a very prominent role in the early days of conservatism uh, led to a a view of conservative thought as being, you know, uh, if not exclusively Catholic and Jewish, uh, you know, largely part of a, a world of discourse that, uh, you know, Catholics and Jews were primarily constructing, and that really didn't have a, you know, very significant evangelical component. What that misses, of course, is that, you know, evangelicals were a large movement who had their own institutions, uh, their own magazines, mm -hmm. their own, you know, radio stations, uh, their own media and uh, their own, uh, you know, civic institutions. And there's a, a parallel history that goes on, uh, you know, in the post-war era among these evangelical institutions. And, you know, quite understandably, uh, you know, uh, Catholic journalists and Jewish journalists and academics, uh, they don't have uh, any, uh, you know, sort of native background with what's happening in the evangelical world right. at the same time as the development of the Catholic and Jewish conservative movement through National Review and through certain other, uh, you know, sort of very prominent institutions. So I think one reason that for um, why, why all histories of, uh, you know, American conservative, especially the intellectual American conservative uh, movement in the post-war era, tend to uh, inadequately cover uh, evangelical developments is because, you know, the background of so many people who, uh, you know, were at some of these key institutions uh, were very far removed from the evangelical experience. And so they're just not aware of some of the parallel developments that were taking place. And, uh, and there, so there's some good scholarship to be created by broadening the narrative and showing actually at the same time as you have, you know, William F. Buckley Jr., or Norman Podoritz doing X, Y, and Z, you also have various evangelical figures 
who are leading, you know, a thought about how Christianity and politics relate to one another. Now, I don't know that story myself, so I, I'm, I'm very, uh, you know, certain that 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 lacuna exists. That there is, in fact, this untold story which someone or many people need to go out and you know retell and rediscover. Uh, but I'm not the person to do that myself. I'm, you know, uh, Catholic, and I come from, you know, uh, the uh, you know history of a lot of these uh, conservative institutions that are part of the narrative that you find. Uh, you know, in Continetti's book and elsewhere, and that really, you know, they may have existed in parallel with developments among uh, evangelicals, but they were on separate tracks, uh, certainly until, uh, you know, maybe the 1980s or beyond. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's really well put. And I would, you know, some, some erstwhile listener out there should fill in that lacuna. Obviously, there, there's a lot that's been done to trace the rise of neo-evangelicalism and Carl F.H. Henry and uh, his book, uh, The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, would be one. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, I think, makes a, a guest appearance here or there in Continetti's book, so he would be another key figure among conservatives. But there, there is, and part of it may be, too, again, for, for right or wrong, but, you know, the, the WASP establishment in the United States, I think evangelicals until fairly recently, have tended to think, you know, w- without any reflection, but just have assumed we can talk about this country as our country. Uh, whereas perhaps Roman Catholics or, or Jews even more so might be trained to think, oh, we, we need to, uh, no, it is every much, bit as much their country, but just intellectually think we need another kind of voice or movement where I think evangelicals have thought of themselves as Hey, we're we are the majority, and people should listen to us. And I think that's meant that they've been slow at times to try to understand and try to speak. You don't want to just acquiesce to being an intellectual minority, and yet that is the fact now. And have been slow to understand. Okay, how do we how do we make arguments now that are persuasive? That you can't just appeal writ large and say, "Hey, this is." America, and you're, you're not going to want to lose this. No, you need to find ways to make new arguments because you no longer have the the cultural institutions and forces supporting those sort of ideas or just the assumptions that if you can just show people, it's kind of like with, with Billy Graham crusades. Billy Graham, uh, for most of his preaching career, I think in this country could tap into a residual sense of, I should probably go to church being a Christian would be a good thing, and I'm, I, I, I need to have—Jesus is a good person, and you could tap into some residual sense of guilt or I'm not doing it, and, and then he presents so powerfully the, the solution. The answer is to give your life to Christ, where I think now you would have to build up a whole lot of other intellectual superstructures to really convince people of that. And I think that's happened to some degree uh, with evangelicals, but we're playing catch up on that and, and happy to be in conversation with lots of people who are thinking along the same lines. Let me give you this as our last question then. You just wrote a piece uh, recently where you called for what we need is a conservative avant-garde. That sounds not conservative, but that's not what you, but, but you explained that in the piece. What did you mean by that, a, a, an avant-garde to the conservative movement? Well, uh, you know, both in the arts and also philosophically. So even though I was talking primarily about culture, 
it really does go up to the level of the highest ideas. Um, the shape of the future is usually led by the people who are, you know, sort of uh, most radical, who are trying to expand the possibilities of an art form or a genre, uh, or for that matter, the possibilities of, uh, you know, sort of human expression, the human experience. And progressives have understood this very well. And it's a reason why so many ideas that you find in the academy or in the world of, uh, you know, sort of uh, arts and literature, uh, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or even longer, uh, wind up sort of predicting and um, tracing the direction that popular culture is going to take, you know, 30, 40 years later. Uh, conservatives have, you know, often lamented uh, that uh, they have not had a position uh, upstream from politics and culture, as it were. Uh, and yet uh, it seems to me that conservatives are pretty complacent and would often rather affirm the glories of the past than try to say, what would it mean to actually be at, uh, you know, the wellspring mm. of uh, the flow of culture? What, what would it mean for conservatives to try to get ahead of the progressives uh, philosophically and creatively? And uh, that's a big question, and it's not one I try to completely answer in my, my column, but certainly I want to get conservatives thinking about that. And if we look throughout the 20th century, we find that uh, oftentimes some of the most impressive modernist poets and uh, playwrights and philosophers were conservatives, people like T.S. Eliot, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. So certainly there is a kind of conservative modernism, and even back then a conservative avant-garde. And you can see, you know, a, a few indications of such a thing today, maybe in, you know, a, a French novelist like Michel Welbeck. But, um, but it's, but it's mo much attenuated today. And it seems to me that conservatives, um, you know, have an opportunity not just to rediscover something they were once much better at, but also to respond to the very stultifying and limiting uh, uh, political correctness that is now being imposed upon the arts and about, upon, you know, the most sort of advanced modes of thinking by progressives and to say, well, look, you, you can't create, uh, you know, uh, really vital and transformative art when you have this extremely, you know, restrictive, uh, you know, orthodoxy being imposed uh, by progressives. And they, the progressives do it, of course, in the name of, you know, uh, human freedom and transgressiveness and all these other concepts that sound radical and revolutionary. But in fact, uh, it's become very stale, just as, you know, uh, the left-wing version of avant-garde art is, in fact, you know, it hasn't advanced since Marcel, Marcel Duchamp, right? right? It's still uh, hanging a, a urinal on the uh, the wall of the uh, you know art museum and saying, "Oh, look yeah, how trendy right. and you know sophisticated we are." Well, Duchamp did it, you know, over well over a hundred years ago. You haven't really, you know, forged any new ground since then. But conservatives, <laughs> I think, tend to be um, they would rather, you know, sort of. Um, reflect upon uh, the glory of what's gone by and what we may be losing, which is there. And there's a place for that. Uh, as I say in, in the essay, um, you know, people often need the, the opposite of what they already have. Conservatives already have this great respect for tradition and for the past. What they need is the innovative and creative spirit that they often don't have. And what more progressives need is not this idea of overturning things and revolution and whatnot. They actually need, and they would benefit artistically if they took more seriously mm -hmm. a great, you know, sort of patrimony, both artistic and also spiritual of Western civilization. Daniel McCarthy, thank you for uh, being on Life and Books and Everything. I'm a, I'm a terrible host in that I was also supposed to uh, thank our other sponsor, Westminster Seminary Press. And uh, just to our listeners, go and check out all the great books that they're putting out and also the books that they sell through the, through the website often. Uh, 
they, they try to undersell Amazon. So go there and uh, especially look out during this holiday season. Crossway ESV Bibles, 50% off through December. What would be a better gift for yourself or someone else than a Bible? So Westminster Seminary Press. Daniel, thank you for being on the program. Hope that we can meet sometime in person. And uh, until then, for all of our listeners, hope you glorify God, enjoy Him forever, and read a good book. 